everyone's super busy trying to save the planet. Probably the busiest man on the planet was Dr. Tedros. And eventually, I just, like, after about a month and a half, two months, I got this call to come and see DG. And I said, what I'd like you to do is get you on a phone call with each of the principals of the big six companies. So let's get you on a call with Sundar from Google, Satyan from Microsoft, wow. you know, and all these people, and Jeff Bezos from Amazon, you know, Salesforce people. And we ended up, you know, setting those calls up in a row, one a week, where we got on the calls with these principals of these companies who obviously realized the situation was, was vital for them to take the call, gave us time and effort. And it was in one of these calls with Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg from our side, Mark said, listen, we've also got WhatsApp. We've got this chat bot. I can give you 50, 100 engineers for the next 10 days. Why don't we do something amazing? You're listening to Aid Evolved. And I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This is a podcast about the people trying to find a better way to do good. Guys, it's December. To close out the year, we're bringing you a very special episode. I'm not going to lie, this one is one of my favorites. We're going to take a tiny break from our current season on investors and donors in digital health to talk to Andy Pattison. Andy is the team lead of the Digital Channels Group within the World Health Organization. WHO. We're going to dive deep into the world of the World Health Organization and its partners in February of 2020, just days before the COVID-19 pandemic was going to change everything. We take it from the moment when Andy gets the call from Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, the guy at the top of the World Health Organization. Dr. Tedros asks Andy to set up the WHO's COVID-19 hotline, a process that would normally take months, if not years, and what it took for Andy and his team to launch the largest WhatsApp service in the world in 12 days. I mean it when I say you don't want to miss this one. This conversation was recorded in person at the Chat for Impact Summit on November 16th, 2022 in Cape Town, South Africa. The summit was graciously hosted by Turn.io in partnership with WhatsApp. Turn.io is a tech spin-off from the African nonprofit Prekelt. They are best known for an open source tool to easily build interactive messaging apps, also known as chatbots. Just before we dive in today, a quick word from our sponsor, idealist.org. Are you looking to hire dedicated and talented professionals? Idealist is the number one job board for the social impact sector. Whether you're hiring for a nonprofit, a business with socially responsible positions, or a company with a social mission, Idealist is the best way to reach an engaged community of millions, all looking to make the world a better place. Sign up to start posting jobs today. Go to idealist.org aid to get a credit for one free 30-day job listing. Now back to our show. We begin by learning a little bit more of the backstory of Andy Pattison and how he joined the WHO right in the midst of the Ebola outbreak. Um, it was pretty hectic because I joined for the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. 
Um, Sounds like a little bit of an understatement. Yeah. So I was, yeah, it was, it was interesting because I was sitting in, in corporate and digital role in corporate for many years. And then I realized I, sh- I needed to do more with my life and I kind of lost my moral bearings. So I literally opened a website and said, what industry could benefit from Andy getting a little bit nosy about and sticking, you know, seeing what I can do. And really on the front page was all is exploding about, you know, the, the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa. So I called up a few contacts at WHO and I said, do you guys need any digital people? And they were like, actually, Sierra Leone does need somebody. So if you could, if you're willing to be deployed, we could maybe send you out there like on Thursday, kind of next Tuesday kind of thing. So I was like, oh, okay. You, and you were okay with that? Yeah, I was okay with that. H- yeah. Had you been there before? Did you have no, experience it working? Was, in- it was my first time to proper Africa um, and it was a bit of a wow. cu- culture shock. Damn. Um, yeah. How'd it go? Uh, it was amazing, right? <laughs> it's amazing because, you, you know, we're, we're all the same, right? We're all the same people. We all want health, happiness for our friends and families, and we want to be successful and joyful and have a career and fulfilling life. So we're all the same. So it's not really such a dramatic thing. But going to West Africa during the middle of an Ebola uh, outbreak where things were closed down, where the only people moving were public health officials mm. or doctors and nurses, where the country was being ripped apart by this terrible disease, which had never been in the country before, yeah. Um, I think that I read a stat that 11% of nurses in Sierra Leone were killed by Ebola because they were treating people. My God. And of course, the knock-on effect of that for public health is that in the future, there are less doctors and nurses to help with maternal, child, adolescent health. And so there's more knock-on effect deaths later on, right? So when already Crazy. depleted health systems are being ravaged, it's that was the culture shock. It wasn't so much, you know, it was seeing civilization sort of put on hold mm. uh, football matches for example were on hold and Sierra Leone actually only said that they returned to normality when the first football match started again where they were able to have large crowds watching football which is I mean, funny. such a core part of uh, culture here on this continent yes what did you do there so my job was to help the country office reach Sierra Leoneans with uh, messages about Ebola what to do if they suspect of having Ebola themselves or um, how they would uh, behave around people with Ebola or bodies of people who died from Ebola. So we had these core messages which had been developed by scientists and epidemiologists, and we were trying to get that out into people's lives. So the country office head, uh, a chap called Anders, said, oh, you must come out and, and figure this out for me. And it was quite a rush getting there, you know, getting the visa and everything. So I actually started my research when I was on layover in Paris, and um, and while I was on layover in Paris, I realized that actually only 4% of Sierra Leoneans had access to the internet. And I thought, of course. gosh, yeah. I'm in trouble now because I, here <laughs> I am. That was the plan. That was the plan, right? So, <laughs> Yikes. And these 4% are probably people who have uh, very rich jobs, probably work in the government and probably live in Freetown. Right. And probably know about Ebola. So it was a bit tricky. But then I had a, um, you know, when I landed, I said, I don't think I'm going to be much use here. And I explained why. And he was like, well, figure it out because you're here for a while. So you <laughs> we're know. not letting you leave the <laughs> country until you solve this. <laughs> exactly. So, oh, man. you know, then I, I sort of, gun. in a moment of clarity, I, I just had this thought about since penetration of uh, radio is so predominant, it was 98% at the time, maybe we can refocus our energy and our target audience can become these 25 radio stations. And so we started creating radio programs, um, public service announcements in the various languages in digital format, which we put on the website. And then literally we were able to just phone these companies, the 25 target audience and say, it's here, please play them on your radio, please create programming around this and get the word out. So it was a little bit, I was quite proud of that because it was a little bit different way of using digital to reach people who are maybe not connected. Yeah, I mean, 
I think radio is severely undersold, and it's still how huge swaths of the global population access their news. So I love that you're able to come to this revelation on your layover and then completely change what your plan of attack was when you when you landed in Sierra Leone. Yeah, driven a lot by panic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, panic is very effective. They it say is. people work the most effectively when they're a little bit cold and a little bit afraid. Okay, so I need to get cold then next time as well. <laughs> That's trickier in Sierra Leone. Yeah. Let's talk about... Uh, the events around 2020. So I think yeah. one of the things that we've been talking about a lot here today at the Chat for Impact Summit in Cave Town in November of 2022 um, is the phenomenal response that arose from some combination of WHO and TURN and Precult and uh, all of the pieces coming together in WhatsApp, obviously, in order to in order to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I think you in particular had a very specific role to play in all of that coming together. Let's start from the beginning. What was going on before the pandemic hit and what happened uh, when the first bits and pieces of the pandemic started making their way to your doorstep? Sure. So um, when we had a new director general, Dr. Tedros, he came in and he immediately said, I want to hear from staff. I have an open door policy. And if you have a big, crazy idea, I want to hear from you. And I thought, well, this is Mm. quite an interesting thing, right? Mm. I've had a lot of bosses who said I have an open door policy and then close them. So (laughs) I thought I'd be, you know, it'd be interesting to actually go and see if his open door policy was genuine and if he really was interested in big ideas and crazy ideas. And you seem uh, like the kind of guy that would come knocking. I did go knocking. <laughs> I, I didn't realize I was the first until about a month later. He told me, you're the only one that's come so far and you're the first. So he had like, nice. the, we had a, an immediate connection. But my, my proposal was f- to work with the private sector, especially the tech sector and the gaming industry, to reach populations directly. The gaming industry? Yes. The gaming industry? We work a, yeah, a lot across the gaming industry trying to get our content into games. No way. Yeah, no we, way. We, we, you know, the gaming industry is increasing year on year. And traditional gaming, you know, most people think the target audience are going to be young men under the age of 25. And that is an audience. And they are, you know, the shooters, the football players, uh, the, the car racing kind of people, right? The shooter mappers, the Fortnite of the world. But actually, one of the key target audience with casual gaming is the 25 to 35 year old woman. They're the ones paying the Candy Crush, the Sudokus, the brain, the brain games. While they're right waiting, up my alley. right? Am I? Might, yeah, my. Do, do you play <laughs> yeah. Candy Crush? There you go, right? So you're already doing that. You're already exercising your brain in this space. It's casual gaming. You don't put aside an evening to to play Candy Crush, but while you're waiting for a bus, or waiting for a meeting to start, or whatever, you 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 engage in a game. If we can get our content into that digital journey, where you start consuming your game that you're in, thr- you know, thrilled about and enjoying. And we can get some public health messages in there to help you live a healthier life. Then everyone wins. When we work with the gaming industry, we work from just getting adverts between screens, you know, which is an easy win because they don't have to change anything with the game, all the way to actually creating games itself with wow. just on WHO content. You'd have to do some pretty serious refactor of Candy Crush. Right. <laughs> but we, d- we did it on Angry Birds, right? So we did with Angry Birds. We had Angry Birds friends. We had several seasons where we had uh, Angry Birds friends talked about mental health. You have a, a 10 more new screens. This it's is a much more interesting interview than uh, I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me wrong. COVID-19 no. is also a little there. <laughs> no, but it's true, right? So this is how we get, we become relevant, right? Is to meet people in their digital journeys. And this is what I mean by it. So you go on to Angry Birds and suddenly, oh, WHO and Angry Birds, Rovio have teamed together to bring you something about mental health. And for the next two weeks, you get these 10 screens and you can play and you can win whatever you know, reward it is, whether it's coins or diamonds. That's awesome. By completing screens. Nice. Right, And while you're playing, it's giving you health messages. Like, did you know 
right? While we're loading this, this screen is called, you know, mental health and breathe, take some time to breathe, process, get off your screens, go for physical activity, whatever the message is, as you're consuming your game and you're engaged anyway, it's so much easier to reach people where they are than drag them in off the street and say, listen to me, really listen to me, right? Mm. And then, Mm. you know, or come to our new channel or download this new app. Absolutely. I, I don't know about you, but my behavior is download an app three weeks later, unload it. That's basically <laughs> what I do, right? Right. <laughs> so, you know, how do I, how do we get into people's digital journeys? And, and the gaming industry is interesting for another reason. Apart from reaching this key demographic, 25 to 35 year old women, who are actually the biggest decision makers about health in every household. It's these are the women that make the calls. They look after their own bodies and they're much more in tune with their own bodies than men are. They are looking after their own babies if they have babies. In traditional marriages, they're looking after their partners, saying, hey, listen, you've been limping for four weeks, go and see the doctor. Right? Men are traditionally bad at looking after themselves. <laughs> they look after their own parents, and in a lot of societies, they look after their mother-in-laws and father-in-laws as well when they move into the house. So these people have massive influence. And so reaching them has a knock-on effect as well. So these are key audiences for us. The gaming industry, the other part which I was going to mention is 80% of the gaming industry are creative people. This means that they can take maybe scientific messages which are traditionally slightly dull and they have to be because they have to be right. Yeah. They have to be because of the scientific exactitude and, and the nuance of language. But they can take that and make it more engaging, make it sexy, make it interesting, and more importantly, they know their audience. So they know the amount of time they're willing to put up with this. Mm. The the amount of words that they can have on their screen or the mobile device. And they can change the messaging, which obviously we clear again to make sure they haven't changed the nuance, but they can make it interesting and engaging for their audiences and in voice which they're used to and color palettes which fit into the game. And it's a seamless way of, of, uh, of getting our messages out there. So. That makes so much sense. So that initial conversation that you had with Tedros was about creating those private sector engagements. Yes. Was that the beginning of you establishing those partnerships with the various different major tech actors or big tech as they're called? Yes, definitely. And th we started that before the pandemic. So our first, uh, we were talking to especially Meta and Google. Mm -hmm. And um, the first to. relationship with, with Google um, that we got off the ground was we got our physical activity guidelines into Google Fit. So if you're on Google Fit, um, the physical activity guidelines, which the, the app is based on, is based on our physical activity guidelines, rather than some university 10,000 steps kind of approach. Amazing. Which makes sense, right? Yeah. That's the only health app I used for like three oh, years of my life. That's good Thank to you. know. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, that's good to see. And then, you know, that was the start of the relationship. We had a big relationship with Meta about elevating content and getting some free ads from them. Um, at the time, just before COVID struck, it was... Uh, there were still outbreaks of measles in some states in the U.S. and also in uh, the Samoa Islands. There was lots of people, I think some 300, don't quote me on the, on the numbers, but some 300 people had died from measles outbreaks, including 100 children. All of that is preventable deaths from, from vaccines. We have very efficient vaccines for, for measles. And so the discussions before Christmas in 2019 was all about elevating good content about measles to these communities. So we had already the dialogue open with large tech, Meta, WhatsApp. Right. Uh, Meta includes WhatsApp and Facebook and, and Instagram. <laughs> so we already had those relationships. The, the people we were talking to were product people. They were not very high up. Mm -hmm. when, when COVID struck, it was clear from talking to our scientists that this was going to be a big problem. Now, they couldn't possibly imagine how big it be 
became, but they definitely pulled the alarm bells very early. And by, I would say, the first week of February uh, 2020, I was in California and I organized a meeting with 60 plus companies. Wow. And I call it the Tech Task Force for COVID-19. Like all of you together in a room? Yep. All of us together in a small room, unventilated, without masks. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, it was February. <laughs> and, w and we didn't know, right? We right. Didn't, the science wasn't out on that. So then there was no restriction. So it was within the rules. But we got in this room and I just said, this is the, the message from my scientists. This is coming and it's going to be a big one. It's going to go everywhere. It's coming to a town near you. And misinformation is going to be rife. So yeah. we need to figure this out. And that was the start of a dialogue. And the tech task force is, as I said, started with you know 40 plus countries and com companies. It's now 60 plus. Most of them based out of the West Coast of the USA. All the big ones you can imagine. We did another one, a smaller one, a couple of days later in Seattle with the key players up there. The Microsofts, Expedia, Airbnb. Uh, and uh, companies like that. That sounds terrifying, just to be in that moment and to yeah. know the tidal wave is coming and to know that this is the group of people that's going to stand up against that tidal wave, but to not to have a plan or even to know how big of a deal it was going to be. It was terrifying. At the same time, it was an extremely positive experience because the people around the table were like, okay, let's roll our sleeves up. What can we do? How can we help? What have we learned from previous outbreaks and previous health emergencies, previous humanitarian things that we can put in place now? And how does that how does that work with the big tech orgs? You know, there's a kind of vision of the big tech orgs as like we want to make money, we want yeah. advertising. What, why were they working with you? So I can't guess as to their motivation, <laughs> but I can you know surmise that the the health industry is I think th I think I read somewhere three hundred billion dollars worth a year. So there's definitely a financial incentive to be in this space. But actually, the, the parts of the companies I work with are not the profit-making profit arms. Mm. Companies like Meta and Google, they will make money out of adverts and cloud services. So yes, we work with them and we get some pro bono stuff, but they're, they're not the people we generally work with. If we're working with search or maps um, or the policy people, they're not making money. So this is not top of mind for them. That makes sense. Like at its, at its core, these services are about creating value and then they might tack on advertising or other sources of Correct. revenue on that, but they need to create value. And part of that value is WHO, your content, your guidance. And so that's the basis on which you were talking to each other when COVID-19 was picking up steam. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, good content means healthy users' habits and your healthy user experience. We, we want healthy users on a different word of the use, healthy. But this allows their platform to be healthier. And then, you know, volume and traffic will eventually impact you know profitability anyway right so mm -hmm. if there's more people consuming your your on your platform the better again i'm not second guessing their motivation i just wanted them to be able to reach people and to fight misinformation basically and also give me user insights because we have small teams and we need that user insights to see where we're going to be most impactful that makes sense that makes sense did they rise to the challenge when you form formed this technical committee this tech Technical Tech Committee. Yeah, Tech Task Force. <laughs> tech Task Force. Yeah, That's a better a, name for them. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think they did. On the whole, um, I was extremely proud of the way they behaved um, as, as humans. Uh, you know, they all inspired. And I think it taught me a valuable lesson about the power of the individual. Huh. I mean, the power of partnerships is clear, right? WHO can't reach people without these huge tech companies to help us reach these, these people. But the power of the individual, because I wasn't talking to Google, I was talking to somebody at Google. Mm. And that person, you know, you know, at Google would be able to say, okay, what can I do? How can I convince my product teams? Nice. And I love this. It, it was really inspiring to see these people saying, I don't know how we're going to do this, but I'm going to go and try and sell this. And I may need you on a call 
because they're going to believe you more than me. So let me do some groundwork and then you jump on a call and let's see if we can do something. And just seeing that snowball effect of one person in a company being able to change a product, a policy or create a new product from scratch just by having a vision and tenacity and a conviction that it was the right thing to do. You know, that's where it was really inspiring. So, yes, it was scary, but it was hugely inspiring. For all of, all of you activists that work inside of the big tech organizations, listen to this. You're powerful. You can make a difference. Listen, Ab- Andy. Absolutely. And, you know, we had some examples where somebody would say, there's nothing my company can do with you. There's literally nothing. However, my partner's friend works in <laughs> this company and he can do something for you. Do you want an intro? I'll be like, yes. And that's how these r- incredible things start. So even if you can't do anything, you know somebody who can do something. And I think that's a metaphor for life as well, right? If you can, you can help anybody. If you can't help them yourself, you can connect them with somebody who can, or at least connect them with somebody who can help them get closer to their goal. And that, that, the power of the individual, I used to think it was all about power of partnership, but with retrospect, this, this ability for individuals who are really motivated to change the world can actually change it. And if you're sitting in a large tech company, what better place to change the world than there, you know? Sometimes I speak to people and say, oh, I'd love your job and go out to the country and have an impact on humans. But actually, the impact they can have on human health is sitting in an office and creating a product which is going to make people's health journey on digital better, faster, more efficient and save lives, right? Amazing. How did the Meta, Prekelt, Turn.io, WHO constellation come together? So fairly soon after that um, discussion in early February, um, I kept feeding the director general and, and my the, at the time I was in the D- Department of Communications information on what I was doing. Of course, everyone's super busy trying to save the planet. Probably the busiest man on the planet was Dr. Tedros. Yeah. And I kept sending him messages saying, we're doing this, we're doing that. Never really got responses because these busy people, right? The director of comms is also in charge of reputational risk and, you know, crafting messages so that it's correct uh, accurately, but also making sure that people can understand them. And eventually, I just, like, after about a month and a half, two months, I got this call to come and see DG. Say, look, you're doing lots of stuff. I've seen some of it. I've read half of it. Come and talk to me. Tell me what you're doing. So I went to talk to him, told him what we're doing. And I said, what I'd like you to do is get you on a phone call with each of the principals of the big six companies. So let's get you on a call with Sundar from Google, Satyan from Microsoft, wow. you know, and all these people, and Jeff Bezos from Amazon, you know, Salesforce people. And we ended up, you know, setting those calls up in a row, one a week, where we got on the calls with these principals of these companies, who obviously realized the situation was, was vital for them to take the call, gave us time and effort. And it was in one of these calls with Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg. From our side, Mark said, listen, We've also got WhatsApp. We've got this chatbot. I can give you 50, 100 engineers for the next 10 days. Why don't we do something amazing? Now, of course, this is my side of the story as I saw it unfold. I now know that the Prekelt guys and Turn guys were already talking to WhatsApp about creating and what could they do. So this, this conversation happened at leadership level. And uh, I remember Dr. Tedros going on to mute and saying, I don't even know what a chatbot is. What, <laughs> what should we say? I said, yeah, it's a good thing. Let's do it, right? So he came off mute and he said, Mark, that sounds fantastic. Andy's going to move it forward. And, Amazing. you know, Mark's team found that, you know, WhatsApp were already talking to Prekelt and Turn. And suddenly th- the next day, the five parties were on a phone call. 
And I think we stood it up in a week. That's amazing. It's insane, right? I love that. I love that Mark just threw himself into the ring like that. He yeah. was like, "I don't, I don't know what's going on with Color Term, but like, let's make this happen. Let's go, go, go!" And just to be able to to be able to move that quickly and decide that quickly. I'm sure Mark has, everyone has their ups and downs, but just that ability to act uh, in that moment yeah. of crisis seems like a really key part. And that's what what I'm saying about this, like the good, the feeling of goodness which came out of COVID. Like you know, this this ability for people. It was the worst of times and best of times. You know. The, these really were some of the, the darkest times that I've had in my career and personal life, but at the same time, so inspiring to work with people who would just say, I don't care about profit. I don't care about my products, but if this saves lives, let's put 50 engineers on it. Because it also happened with my leadership, it meant it was very easy from my side, from a paperwork, paper trail point of view to say, we're just going to do a relationship. Mm-hmm. Let's step it up because it's already been agreed. And so everyone on my side worked together to come together with a, with a legal framework in which we can work with large tech very quickly for these chatbots. Nice. And as I said, in a week, we stepped it up. And I think we launched in about 12 days. Wow, that's nuts. It's crazy, right? And it went viral before we launched. We had like 5 million users before we'd even launched. Wow. And how does, like, I have to imagine, again, because WHO hasn't done something like this before, you talked about it a bit during your your talk at the summit, but WHO, at least in my mental model, you have these stiff guidelines that get published every 10 years and updated rigorously, but you needed to act in 12 days to launch this. How did you, how did that happen? How did, how did you pull it together, a content in the right format and the right, in, in the right way? Like, it just seems like there's so many aspects of the operations of it that sound tricky. Yeah, I think that goes down to like people. My team were amazing, obviously, uh, really clever, bright people, all four of them. But it was an extended team as well. Back then, we were also poaching people from other teams to help us. We had somebody volunteer to help us with all the translations. We had somebody else volunteer to to help clear certain type of content with regards to certain health topics. Um, So there was this really good feel factor of everybody pitching in. Some people's jobs naturally it stopped because you know it was a different type of work and suddenly they're like what can i do and we were roping them in all over the place mm-hmm. so it was larger than just the four um getting off the ground but so you were recruiting internally recruiting definitely <laughs> poaching you know bribing with swiss chocolate and you gotta do you, what you gotta do it's all about public health you know so we got <laughs> yes. them in um and i think experience as well i've got quite a lot of experience in creating digital products and i think that one of the mistakes that NGOs and UN agencies make is they try and create one product for everybody and by doing so they create a product for nobody right because they've diluted it to a point that it's no longer interesting um, or it's too complicated it never launches the way that we work in my team is to think of the minimum viable product and launch launch quickly iterate often you never fail you either succeed or learn and that's the way we ap- we have a, an approach to it. So we got, you know, on one side I was getting, what's the minimum content I need to get on this bot? And it's going to be in English because that's the minimum viable product. Then Prekelt were like, okay, what's the minimum dialogue flow that we need to put in place? Chat functions. And then the engineers were like, okay, how many people are we going to have the minimum number? Well, let's, let's scale it for 100,000 people. Of course, it went crazy. Yeah. And then, we, you know, servers were falling down and we, we didn't know if we had enough lines. It was crazy, right? Crazy times. The engineers must have had the most exciting 10 days of their lives, but also, you know, the problems they must have had to solve. So hats off to the engineers who made, pulled this off, both on turn and uh, WhatsApp side of, of the fence. It was just incredible. But to pull something off in 12 days, like I have to imagine that you just 
you had to move. You know, you picked some things, and maybe usually there's 10 different subcommittees that give feedback yeah. on it, but you had to launch because you had to launch on the timelines. Did anyone yell at you? Did you step on any toes? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and in it's a way, like almost a now I'm a bit proud of it. Like, you know, it's <laughs> terrible to say, but I'm a bit proud of it because it's all about public health. The decisions I made were all about public health. So, yes, there were processes we should have followed, could have followed, but we needed to get products out to save lives immediately. When we're not thinking, oh, let's six months and, you know, then it's going to impact the world. We were literally seeing an outbreak happen in real time in Italy, which is next door to Switzerland. We had people who were suffering. We knew, the, you know, the, the health uh, systems in, in Italy were suffering badly. It's, let's, you know, an hour's drive away from Switzerland. So it's very real. And we yeah. had to make decisions and calls which, you know, at the time were the best we could make in the time. And we had, of course, committees phoning saying, how are you clearing the content? Right. Where's this coming from? And I'd say, don't worry, it's all pre-cleared content, which we're taking from this source. And they're like, OK, that's fine then, as long as it's pre-cleared. How are you going to keep up to it? I said, well, one of my staff is going to sit on this panel every time the content is updated. She's going to know and she's going to flag it and we're going to change it in real time. Okay, second panel, we're quite happy with it. You know? And then we had the legal agreements talking about our agreement with Meta and WhatsApp itself. What is that going to look like? So they were working flat out to get that done. And it was all happening in parallel. Wow. And sometimes processes are there for reasons, and sometimes processes have to happen in parallel rather than in sequentially. Um, at the end of the day, we pulled it off. And wow. uh, we needed to launch that bot in English. And already before we'd launched, I'd already planted the seed that it needed to be in Italian, like within three days later. Nice. So we were, because of the, the, the health issues in, in Italy. So we pushed that out. And immediately I talked to the person in the team who was dealing with translations. I said, yeah, Simone, you've got to help us here. Get it into Italian. And so she took the minimum viable product in English, started translating it in Italian, started sending it through. So as soon as the English was launched... The team didn't have a minute. We launched the minimum viable product in Italian. Amazing. Right? That's so, amazing. Yeah. I just want to uh, spell this out for those in our audience who haven't worked at a big organization or an organization with the, the sway or the brand um, that the World Health Organization has. On, on the one hand, maybe it sounds just like, you know, here's the objection, here's the, here's the objection, here's the answer. But Andy, you clearly needed to think through every step of it. Like these are all the different committees. These are all the different levels of approval. When they come with the question, I'm going to be like 10 steps ahead of that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that I'm following protocol and I'm just going to figure it all out within that 12-day window when services like this usually take years even to launch. Yeah. So it's, it's really phenomenal what you're able to pull off there. Thank you. I think that everyone at WHO during that time was in that mode, though. So even the traditional people who... Take a little credit. Take yeah, a little credit, no, Eddie. Come on. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I appreciate what you say. But at the same time, you know, we had to put in place as fast-track processes for COVID, which we've never had before or since. Clearing of content, legal frameworks, accepting pro bono, gifts, everything. So the legal team and the partnership team jumped through hoops on fire to get that done as well within a way that would protect the organization but fast tracking it right that makes so sense. I, I think you know these extraordinary events cause for extraordinary people to step up so it's definitely not uh, just credit here it's credit on a much larger scale yeah that actually leads to my next question which is obviously what happened with COVID-19 was unprecedented what are the aspects from that experience where WHO or your team or you have learned from that, that you can use for God forbid the next pandemic. Like what are some of the what are some of the things that you take away from that experience that you hope that you hope lasts beyond the the crisis of yeah. 
of the past two years? It's an excellent question. Actually, the way we look at our COVID tools is that everything we've done for COVID, we now have to use what we've learned to help some of the other big health issues that are on, you know, that are affecting people. So despite the pandemic, and the, I think it's what, 6.5 million people who've died from COVID, if you look at that compared to non-communicable diseases, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, these are the big killers of the planet. 70% of us, 80% in some countries will die of these non-communicable diseases. So diseases which don't go from one person to another. We need to protect those people as well. So everything we're doing in COVID, we're now l applying to these other health topics. And we've already started moving already a year ago with some of these health topics. Um, even during COVID, we started pushing mental health because mental health was linked to COVID. Big deal, right? Yeah. Physical activity was down because people were going into lockdowns. We talked about this health, we call it health promotion. Making people live healthier lives so they don't get sick. Move more, eat better, don't smoke, basically, in a nutshell. I'm mm. no scientist, but that's kind of what we, we're trying to do. Sounds right. So that so we're pushing those messages out. And I think the big thing we've learned is, as I said, the partner the power of partnerships, um, like working with companies who can reach audiences that we want. So rather I'm do, I don't get up in the morning and say, Okay, I'm gonna have a relationship with this company today. <laughs> I think who is actually the audience that we need to tell about this topic? Where are they in the digital journeys? What apps are they using? And then I decide that that's the company I need to work with. So perfect example with regards to a monkeypox outbreak, which is, which is currently ongoing as well, another public health emergency of international concern. The, at the moment, it's being spread in communities of men seeking sex with men. How do we reach those populations? Well, they're on a certain bunch of apps. They're on Grinder. they're on Planet Romeo, they're on Hunks. There's all these kind of apps where these people are. So I picked up the phone in May to these companies and I said, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to inform the community, which is on your app, on ways to stay safe. And they were all, first of all, flawed, that WHO <laughs> called them, but all super supportive and nice. said, this is so important for us. And how can we help? And, you know, newsletters went out, features went into the app, messages went out to people. And in even then, more traditional dating sites like Tinder, you know, approaches and says, you know, 20% of our audience or, you know, have, have expressed an interest in same-sex um, relationships. So maybe we can push content out to those 20% or maybe everybody because it's, it's not a, you know, a disease for, you know, for, for gay men. It's for everybody, but they're the ones which are being affected at the most. So that's what we did. We talked to Tinder and said, okay, yeah, let's, how, do we, how do we reach those populations? Nice. So it's very much thinking... Where, what audiences do we need to tell that message and then working upstream? Often people phone me and say, hey, I want a chatbot. But they haven't thought about the audience, right? <laughs> so they want a chatbot, but for what? And then you listen to them and you say, well, that's not going to solve your problem, mm. right? You're just going to have a beautiful chatbot, but it's not going to solve your problem. So I think that's another uh, a mistake we, we've, you know, usual UN agencies, they pick up on a trend and say, that's what we want. Everyone else has got one, we should have one. Mm. As, a, as opposed to thinking audience is everything. Right. right? You got to think of who is the person, who is the community you're trying to reach. Yeah. And then how do I get there? And it, clearly you've worked with a ton of different technology organizations, the biggest ones, and I'm sure a bunch of the smaller ones as well. Do you have any guidance for people in the tech sector, for big tech, for small tech, about how they can better support your work or the, the, the case for public health? Yeah, I think the important thing there is what you said is the case for public health. You know, it's not about WHO and WHO branding. It's really about getting health messages out there. And to that effect, we've actually launched con content without our branding on in certain occasions, 
just because we know the audience is untrusting of our brand itself. So there were some communities in some states where they were untrusting of our brand, but we still had opportunities to reach them. We knew it would be detrimental to the health message if our logo was there. So we removed it. So it is about um, advancing public health, right? So that's key, what you said. Absolutely, right? (laughs) But it's important what you've said there. It's really important. It doesn't mean you have to have a relationship with WHO. You can reach out to your own humanitarian, you know, local NGO, to your UN agency that, that deals with your area. And I think the important thing is to try stuff, to just go and try and evaluate. So think about it from a scientific point of view to say, we're going to try it. A lot of traditional scientists will say, why are we trying it if the evidence isn't there? I say, let's try it and build the evidence, right? And that's how we do it in our team. So I would go out and do something in mind of saying some part of this project has to write it up. We have to put it into some kind of peer-reviewed paper or case study and publish it in in the literature so that the whole of public health ecosystem can benefit. So it's no point WHO doing it in isolation and doing, well done, pat yourself on the back, we've saved some lives. What's important is also documenting it. So I would say, as I said earlier, there's no way you can fail. Just go out, try something and write it up. If You, you either succeed or you, or you learn. And if you learn, other people are going to learn. And what would you say to big companies and small companies that want to work with you specifically? What's the best way to engage with the World Health Organization? Contact me on LinkedIn. Get out there. Say, hey, I don't even know what we're going to do yet, but this is my product. This is our company. Is there any way we can collaborate? Because we're open for business. Andy, for listeners who want to learn more about your work, what's the best place to do that? Um, you can follow me on LinkedIn. I, I post my stuff on LinkedIn. Um, and our website, of course, uh, who.int, a corporate website is there as well. Yeah, you got to you gotta know WHO. Plug it there, right? Yeah. <laughs> you got to throw it in there. We have a site called Digital Channels within there, which lists all our projects. Now, let me ask you a question. Was that story anything like you thought it would be? Did you know that the World Health Organization is in Angry Birds? And Tinder? Tinder! I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I clearly did. And that this unlikely alliance of people and organizations coming together in times of crisis might give you a little bit more faith in humanity as we head into the holiday season. Of course, if you'd like to hear more from Aid Evolved, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Next year, we'll be returning to our current season where we open up the secret world of investors and donors in digital health. And if you have a minute to spare over the holidays, We're always thankful for positive reviews on Apple Podcasts. Merry Christmas, everyone. Hope you got something out of the show this year. I'll see you in 2023.